We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, how this three chapters, these, these, this very well-known passage, really is the story of the life of the Christian. It really is the life of the Christian which is so very different to the life that is being lived by men and women outside of Christianity. We've used the term counter-cultural, very different indeed. And what we've done so far is look at the first of the four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about that. And we talked about blessed are those who mourn, who mourn because of their spiritual poverty. Then we looked at blessed are the meek, those who are of a gentle spirit, those who take the spiritual poverty and show it to others through meekness and gentleness. And we finished last Sunday by looking at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be indeed filled. And what I'd like to do this morning is take us through the last of the, of the Beatitudes. I discovered at home group on, on, um, on Wednesday night that none of the people in the, in the room had heard the word Beatitude before. And I have to apologize for that. I thought it's a word everybody knew. It's simply a word that we have given over the years to these eight particular statements because they all start with the word bless, blessed are and Beatitude means a great blessing. So forgive me if I've used that word and you haven't quite understood what it means. So having said that, let's go to Beatitude number five, shall we? Beatitude number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Some of God's great attributes are his mercy and his grace towards us. And mercy and grace are quite different things. Mercy... Uh, always deals with what we see of pain and, and misery and distress and the results of sin. Whereas grace is all about dealing with sin and guilt itself. Now we as, 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 as children of God can show people mercy by extending relief, by helping to cure and to heal and to help. But we, are not, we don't have grace within ourselves to give people grace. That's what God gives. Because grace is about pardon. It's about cleansing. It's about forgiveness, which we don't, we don't give. But we can be channels of God's grace. God may decide to use us in his grace to get through to others. But here, specifically, we're talking about mercy. And I wondered why, because I'm convinced that these Beatitudes fall in a definite order. The one comes after the other and builds upon it, and so on and so on. So here we get to blessed are the merciful, which comes straight after blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how on earth do they link together? Well, I had to get a bit of advice from a few commentators here because I couldn't figure it out for myself. I really couldn't. R.T. Kendall suggests that if you truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you really want to come to God and say to him, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do, then what might happen is he might say, really? And he might put you to the test. And one of the ways that we are tested, very often you as Christians know this, that very often we are tested because people hurt us because people come our way and they let us down. People maybe say unpleasant things about us or blacken our reputations. And the natural response to that is to take revenge. 
Jesus says, no, don't take revenge. Show mercy. Show mercy. So we have to be very careful, I think. Kendall says, next time we, we find ourselves saying, Lord, have your way with me. Help me to be more like Jesus. I really want to be like Jesus. Don't be surprised if the very next moment God puts you in a position to see how serious you really are. I think there are two kinds of ways of showing mercy, if you like. The first one, I call it feel mercy or affectionate mercy. And that means when I really genuinely feel great sense of pity or empathy or even sympathy for somebody who is going through a difficult time. And we all understand that. We know what it is. And we know when we're with somebody if they feel that towards us. We can sense that. I call that feeling mercy or affectionate mercy. But I think there's another kind of mercy, and that's what I would call an aggressive mercy or a doing mercy, where I not only feel merciful, I not only feel empathy, I not only feel as if I want to help, but I actually do something. And my suspicion is that this particular beatitude is talking specifically about this aggressive form of mercy, where we actually do something. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, the apostle writes, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So this aggressive mercy uh, may or may not include the feelings of empathy, but it will certainly be about doing something as God commands us to do. But to whom are we supposed to show mercy? This particular verse doesn't tell us. So we assume it must be towards everybody. We're to show mercy to all of those who cross our path. And I believe that's what we ought to do. God is a merciful God, and as citizens of his kingdom, we ought to be merciful people. But we live in a world that is excruciatingly often very unmerciful. So at times, and I believe the church as well has failed at times, to show the real mercy that we should have shown. The attitude of the world very often is to to insulate, to insulate itself against pain and suffering of others. And we see this to some degree in this panic buying that is going on. I find that a terrifically selfish thing to do, and I trust none of us are doing anything like that. And very often it's only a tiny minority who give of their time and their energy and their money to relieve the suffering of others. There are far too many people who find revenge delicious and forgiveness tame. Showing mercy is not about having the kind of easygoing, laid-back attitude towards others and just ignoring imperfections and looking past their shortcomings. Probably if I were to look through the scriptures and find the best example of somebody giving mercy, it would probably be the story of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with that story. How those who should have shown mercy, those men of faith, those men of the church, if you like, those religious leaders who see a man suffering on the, on the roadside, they, they may well have felt a wee bit of pity. Who knows? They should have. But did they do anything? No, 
they walked by on the other side. Until a man comes who should have had no reason whatsoever for showing pity, because largely he was an enemy of the man lying there. He was a Samaritan. And he stops and he gets down on his knees and he comes to the man and he gives his help. That's what mercy is all about. They did nothing. He did something. And it starts with this desire to relieve misery and to, to share need. And when I prepared this message some weeks ago, we weren't into this situation that we find ourselves today with the virus and so on. But what opportunities is the Lord going to give us, you and me, over this next few weeks and months to show mercy? To be really active in showing mercy and being aware of the distress of other people. I thank the Lord every day that I belong to a church full of merciful people. People in this church rally around. And when there are those who are isolated and lonely, people make it their job to make sure that that doesn't go on for too long and they invite them into their homes. I was delighted when... I see Godfrey and the family are not here today, but when Godfrey was in the situation which he was with the boys, numbers of people came around and created opportunities for them to share and to, to help in a dozen different ways, some financially, that we were able to, to help. That's mercy. That's showing mercy. And that's wonderful. We have a merciful church, and I thank the Lord for that. You see, as, as merciful Christians, we no longer see men and women as we used to see them. We now see men and women through God's eyes. And that's a very different picture. Men and women look entirely different when you see them through God's eyes. Their need is so much more apparent when you see people through God's eyes. You see men and women and young people around you as victims of their own rebellion against God, as pawns of the evil one, Fooled by Satan. You see, you see them no longer as just people you don't like or can't get on with or want to avoid. Now you really pity them. You feel genuinely sorry and you're driven to do something. We need to be just a wee bit careful with this beatitude. Because the beatitude says this, Blessed are those, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We find this echoed later on in the same sermon, chapter 6 and verse 14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Where else do you remember hearing those words? In the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And what it sounds like is, if you want to get mercy from God, then you must be merciful to others. It sounds like if you want to be forgiven by God, then you must first forgive others. But that's not what it teaches here. That's taught in some, some parts of Christianity, but it's not taught by this church, and it's certainly not taught by evangelical Christianity. This is not a statement of if you do these good things, God will then be good to you. That's not what it is. We can never... We can never merit God's mercy simply by being merciful. We can never claim God's forgiveness simply by forgiving others. 
But what is true, and I might just repeat this, what is true is that we, while we cannot hope to receive mercy and forgiveness from God, unless we repent and are contrite about our sins, that's how we get it. That's how we get mercy and forgiveness, by, being, by repenting. And we cannot claim to have repented of our sins if we continue to be unmerciful and unforgiving towards others. So what I'm trying to say here is this. If you have, and you need to think about this very carefully, and there's certainly something that has crossed my spiritual journey on a number of occasions. If I myself find myself with a deeply unforgiving spirit, deeply unmerciful heart, one of the questions I need to ask myself is, have I experienced God's forgiveness? Do I really understand what has happened to me? Nothing moves us to forgive and to show mercy like the wonderful knowledge that we have been shown mercy by God. Nothing moves us to forgive more than experiencing and knowing God's forgiveness in our lives. And when that happens, we show mercy. We give forgiveness. To be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on others because they are sinners. Let's have a look at the next beatitude, Matthew chapter 5. The sixth beatitude says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The first beatitude speaks about being poor in spirit, Now we have pure in heart. The idea of spirit and heart are pretty much the same. It means about in our innermost being. We need to be pure in our innermost being. So clearly Jesus here is talking about spiritual purity, just as he was talking about spiritual poverty. Now in Jesus' day, if you were talking about purity, especially to a Jewish audience, that word would have brought all sorts of thoughts of specific types of ceremonial washing of your hands. We do a bit of that today as well, don't we? Not necessarily for purity's purposes, but in those days there were all sorts of rules and regulations about how if you were to approach any particular situation, you had to go through the ceremonial cleansing. It was an outward washing of the hands and other parts of the body in order to be presentable to God. So that's how they might have interpreted it. When Jesus says pure, but then he says pure in heart. And I think one of the writers in the scripture who is closest in many ways to the the writings of Jesus himself or the the speech of Jesus himself is, is David. And David in that lovely psalm, I think it's Psalm 24 if I'm not mistaken, says David says no one can ascend unto the hill of the Lord unless he has clean hands and a pure heart. And he goes on to say, teach me wisdom in my secret heart and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And I think Jesus picks up this theme again and again. And in Luke chapter 11, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Now, there's nobody as clean as a Pharisee. Well, that's what you were thought, taught, led to believe. If you wanted to see purity, you looked at a Pharisee because they washed their hands more often than we do today. 
And what does Jesus say to the Pharisees in Luke 11? You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and wickedness. I don't think they enjoyed hearing that. And in Matthew 23, we see Jesus again speaking of these same Pharisees. And he says that you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So here we have a clear picture of the distinction between inner and outer purity. This concept of inward moral purity is, is, is consistent with all of the teaching of the Old Testament. And certainly here in the teaching of the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's fundamental to everything that is said. It's not about the outward, it's about the inward. As he goes on to talk about adultery and lustful thinking, murder and hateful thinking. It's all about what happens on the inside. Nevertheless, in the context of all the other Beatitudes... Purity of heart does seem to refer, in some sense, to our outward relationships. It's no use just being pure in heart and that not affecting anybody. Professor Tasker says this. He says, pure in heart means single-minded. Those who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. So the person who is pure in heart, pure in spirit is a person who is single-minded, free from the tyranny of a divided self. So we could say, if you like, as J.B. Phillips does in his translation, blessed are the utterly sincere. Blessed are the utterly sincere, for they shall see God. Again, in Psalm 24, David says, talks about clean hands and a pure heart, and he does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. To, all, to me, this, this all means that someone who is pure in heart is primarily pure in his relationships with God. And in that relationship with God, the relationship with people ex- exhibits the same purity. It's free from falsehood. People who are pure in spirit, pure in heart, are utterly sincere, as J.B. Phillips says. Their whole life, public, private, is transparent before God and others. Their very heart, including their thoughts and their motives, is pure, uncontaminated by anything devious or ulterior. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. What a standard he sets us. What a standard he sets us. But how few of us live such truly single lives and live them in the open. If you're like me, you're tempted to wear a mask from time to time. You're tempted to be behind, behind some kind of facade so that people don't see what you don't want them to see. Sometimes to play a different role, depending on the situation in which you find yourself, wherever that might be. And sometimes it's almost like you're a different person. And people around you get all confused. It's a bit like play acting sometimes. And some people that you know have weaved around themselves such a tissue of lies and make-believe that you just don't know them. Jesus, I am sure, was the only one 
who is truly pure of heart, entirely without deceit. And yet he sets for us this very high standard. But he does say that if we are pure in heart, we will see God. That's the reward in this case. Slightly different from some of the other rewards. We will see God. And in the present, here and now, I believe there's a direct relationship, and I say this and I I stand by it, I think there's a direct relationship between the degree of the purity of our heart and the clarity of the vision we have of God. Let me say that again. I believe there's a direct relationship between the degree of purity we have in our heart and our spirit and the clarity of the vision we have of God. We see God only as clear as our hearts are pure. When I am full of insincerity, when I am full of falsehood, even though I may be a child of God, my vision of God is blurred. My vision of God is limited. But as the Holy Spirit works in my heart and in your heart and frees us slowly, sometimes painfully, from the need to pretend, from the need to hide behind the mask, and to act in a way that we know to be false, as the Holy Spirit does this for us, what he also does at the same time, he brings clarity to our vision of God. He helps us see God more clearly. And how many of us don't want that? How many people haven't I spoken to over the months that have said, if only I could see God more clearly? Well, this may be the first step. And what a joy it is to have those moments when God becomes so real to us. So I ask you, how is your vision of God this morning? Do you find it difficult to get a picture of him in your mind's eye? If so, the answer is to go to his word with a sincere heart and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal himself to you. And he will do this, because that's what this beatitude promises. And of course, in the future, one of the most tremendous rewards that we have is that one day we will, as his children, see him as he is. All the blurriness will be gone. All the short-sightedness will be gone. 2020 vision will be there in its full, full wonder. And we will see Christ as clearly as he was seen when he walked the shores of Galilee. What a privilege and a pleasure that's going to be. The second last beatitude is this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Notice it's not blessed are the peace lovers, but the peacemakers. I was brought up as a teenager in the 1960s and went through my university years into the early 1970s. Uh, During that particular interesting time, I was in America at the time for a lot of it. And boy, there were a lot of peace lovers around in those days. We all had t-shirts that said, make love, not war. (laughs) We all wore our hair in, in long beads and stuff. And it was peace, 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 peace everywhere. We loved peace, but there were very few people making peace because America particularly was at its most violent it had been in centuries. This is about the peacemakers. How do you get from pure in heart to peacemaking? How does that link? One of the most common causes of conflict is intrigue and selfishness. And it is only through purity of heart and sincerity and openness that reconciliation can come about. 
And the news here is that every Christian is called to be a peacemaker. Every one of us is called to be a peacemaker in the world and in the church. Kendall puts it this way. A high level of spiritual maturity, as in purity of heart, means that you will have increased objectiveness about yourself. You will be able to stand apart from yourself to objectively judge yourself. You will not be especially biased towards yourself, but will be biased towards the truth. You are more likely to see yourself as others see you and as God sees you. Peacemaking, therefore, follows purity of heart, giving you a wider perspective. You will be concerned for others wanting to make peace. You say, this is all very well and good, but didn't Jesus say when he was here on earth, if you look at uh, Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. He said that he would set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he says, your, your enemies will be amidst your own household. So how does this then work? He clearly indicates to Jesus that as a result of his coming, conflict may often occur, even with one's own family. And some of you have experienced that. And that if we are to be worthy of him, we must love him best, even more than we love those who are nearest and dearest to us. That's what the gospel does sometimes. It brings conflict. It brings conflict because it is rejected. But I think what Jesus is saying here, we must never seek conflict or be responsible for it. We are to pursue peace. As the scriptures say, we are to strive for peace with all men. So far as possible, we are to live peaceably with all. Now, peacemaking is God's work. Peacemaking is essentially divine work. It means, it means reconciliation, doesn't it? And God is the author of all reconciliation. And Paul talks about this when he talks in Colossians chapter 1 about Christ being pleased to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new man in place of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, so making peace. So it's hardly surprising that the reward for peacemaking is to become instruments in his hand. We're going to be called the children of God. If we are peacemakers, we're going to be called his children. And as children of God, we're to do what he does, make peace. And it's a question we have to ask ourselves, and those who know me well will know that I've probably asked myself this question a number of times over the last weeks. Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Am I truly one who tries to bring people together or do I somehow delight in bringing about and causing conflict? Peacemaking is not about appeasement. It's not about peace at any price. Peacemaking may be costly. It may come at a price. If you are involved in a conflict, in a quarrel with somebody, Peacemaking may cost you. It may cost you unreserved apology. That can be painful. 
Unreserved apology can be painful. Peacemaking may mean that you have to rebuke the one who has hurt you. That can be painful, but it may be part of peacemaking. It may be painful because maybe you need to hold back forgiveness until you can see repentance. And that can be very painful because what you don't want is cheap forgiveness, cheap peace. And if you find yourself in a quarrel and a conflict between two people, that can also be painful. And you know that. You've been there sometimes. Here are people and they're really having a go at each other and you just feel you want to come in there and you want to be a peacemaker, but it hurts. One of the reasons it hurts is because you have to listen and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. And that can be painful sometimes. It can be painful because you've got to rid yourself of prejudice. You can't take sides. You've got to listen and you've got to be objective. It can be painful because you've got to strive sympathetically to understand both points of view. And quite naturally, you kind of sympathize with the one more than the other. But you can't do that. You've got to listen carefully. And it can be painful because... There may be understanding, ingratitude or failure. Yeah, peacemaking can be costly in time and in effort and energy and emotion, but it's what we're called to do. And I wonder whether this isn't timely as well. If this whole issue we have now with the virus is going to do anything, I suggest it is going to bring times of conflict. We are going to be faced with conflicts, not conflicts that we cause, but conflicts that we become somehow a part of. And let's remember this verse in those times, that we are called to be peacemakers. I think the world's going to be crying out for peacemakers in every element of society over the next few weeks and months. And finally, we come full circle. Why do we know we've come full circle? Because the reward... But of the first uh, beatitude and the reward in the final beatitude are the same. It's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here for the first time, Jesus adds a little bit of detail, if you like. He goes on to explain it a little bit. And he says, blessed are you, and I think it's actually the same beatitude. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Seems odd, isn't it? He goes from peacemaking now to persecution. Why peacemaking and now persecution? Well, not all attempts at peacemaking work out. Sometimes your attempts at reconciliation will result in more conflict. Sometimes it is that way. Some folk will take the initiative to oppose you, even to revile you or slander you, simply because you're a Christian. But notice, this this persecution, this mockery, this insulting, is not aimed at any foibles or idiosyncrasies in me that we might have, It is persecution for the sake of righteousness. It is persecution on Christ's account. It's because they find his words and his ways distasteful. They reject the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for because they reject Christ. And Jesus doesn't say that we're going to be blessed simply because we feel persecuted. 
Only if we are being persecuted for the sake of Jesus. God's message and God's standard of goodness, that's when we stand for those things, we get persecuted. Don Carson says this, We are not to expect blessing if we are being sidelined because we are simply objectionable or because we rave like wild-eyed lunatics or because we uphold some religio-political cause. There's no glory, there's no reward for being stupid enough to bring mockery and so on upon yourselves because of your own foolishness. May I use an example here? And you may disagree with me, that's fine. When Israel Folau, the Australian rugby player, was first censured by the Australian Rugby Union, for in a, in a Facebook entry he made, he quoted a verse of scripture from the Old Testament where a whole list of different sins were indicated as if you do this, you do this, you're going to end up in hell. That's or, or, or destruction. So there were murderers and liars and thieves, and in that list was homosexuals. And that came on his Facebook page, and he was hammered. It's sad that people quote Bible verses and get hammered for doing that. I have all sympathy for him. Part of me says, of all the wonderful verses in the Bible, why did you have to choose that particular one? But then three weeks later, that same young man, this rugby player, he's a wonderful rugby player, stands up in a church in Australia when Australia is busy burning down. The whole of the southeast of Australia is, is being burnt. And he stands up and he takes a verse out of context and he says, Australia is burning because of the increase of homosexuality in our country. To me, that was a stupid thing to say personally, because he didn't know that. Were the fires in Australia a result of God's judgment? I don't know. Possibly. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't because of one sin that was on the rise. There are many sins in society that could have caused that. And it was rather foolish of him to try to make a case for that particular situation. And as a result, he cried, persecution, persecution, persecution. I think we've got to be very careful here. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and therefore we expect opposition. It's going to happen. In fact, it's true based on every reliable survey that I have seen over the last years that there are more people today being persecuted for their Christian faith than ever before in human history. And look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 26. Jesus says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Universal popularity is for false prophets, just as persecution is for true prophets. If you've not read the life and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'd suggest it's not a bad idea. He was a man who was, probably of the last hundred years, the one who's spoken most distinctly and clearly about the Christian and persecution. He stood up against Hitler's Nazism. 
At one stage, he was accused of being a part of a plot to actually assassinate Hitler. He was imprisoned, he was tortured, and eventually he was executed by direct order from Heinrich Himmler in the Flossenburg concentration camp in April 1945, just three or four days before the camp was liberated. And he says this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ, and it is not all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a token, it is a joy and a token of his grace. I'm going to close by saying, why should we? Why should we rejoice? Because this is what it says. If, you, if you're persecuted, rejoice. Be glad. Why should we? Well, great is our reward in heaven. That's why. Especially in heaven. There's a clear indication that though there will be no jealousy or envy in heaven because you've got something I haven't got and so on, because there are going to be different rewards, there's going to be no jealousy and no envy, but it's clear from a number of passages of Scripture that those who have gone through severe suffering for their faith seem to have far greater rewards than those who don't. We rejoice because I think we, if we suffer for our faith, we belong to a noble succession of people who have been suffering for their faith. He says he talks here about the prophets before you. This is not the first generation of people who've suffered for their faith. You say, well, I've never suffered for my faith. Well, I'm not going to say the time is coming when you will, but sometimes the reason we're not suffering from our faith, for our faith is possibly, possibly because we haven't really nailed our, our colors to the mast. And we suffer on his account. We suffer on his account on account of our loyalty to Jesus and to his standards of truth and righteousness. And it's that lovely story of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they, they've been imprisoned and threatened and beaten by the Sanhedrin. And eventually they left the presence of the council, it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. I'm going to close there. One or two things more I wanted to say, but I'm going to leave them out because we've come to the end of our time. I would like you to take those Beatitudes away with you, and I'd like you to read them one more time. They are the story of the Christian believer. And have a look at them bit by bit. In your home groups, take time over them. Spend a bit of time on them, and I think you'll find great blessing there. Just one word I leave with you. Oswald Chambers, the great writer, has an important word for us at the end of this study. He has a very, very brief study on the Sermon on the Mount, but a wonderful book. And he says this, Beware of placing our Lord as teacher first instead of saviour. Beware of placing Jesus as teacher first instead of saviour. It is dangerous even today, that tendency. We must know him first as Savior before his teaching can have any meaning for us or before it can have any meaning other than that of an ideal that leads to despair.
There are many who love the Sermon on the Mount. And many of those people are outside of the church. They just think it's a wonderful piece of teaching. But they need to understand that you first of all need to find Jesus as Savior before you admire him as teacher. And until you find him as Savior, you may try to follow his teachings, but you will end up in despair because you cannot. You know Jesus as Savior this morning. When you know him as Savior, then his teachings become real to you. Father, we thank you for your word once again. Bless it to our hearts, we pray. Help us to spend more time in it, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.